So this is a, this is a chapter about ethics. Uh, I don't know how many of you have ever studied ethics before. You might be thinking, oh, great, ethics. Don't, never kind of got to grips with that stuff. It's all philosophical, right? It's a chapter on ethics, a chapter on, on how the government is actually an extension of our ethics. If you've done any sociology, you, you, you might have heard it being referred to as the social contract, right? You've heard of the social contract. I think it's a secularist way of describing something that's very, very unclear. We don't have a, really have a social contract. We have something much deeper than that. And we, we're not an ant nest, right? This world of human beings is not an ant nest. We are image bearers of God. We, we are complex creatures. And so we, we, we deal with governing authorities. But we don't particularly deal with them very well <laughs> as a species. But we don't just deal with human governing authorities. We also have a spiritual governing authority. Any, any guesses as to who our spiritual governing authority is? Who's the final authority on all things? Good answer over there. We read in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, it says this, For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, the very first thing, and the government will be on his shoulders, right? I'm not going to kind of announce slides. Whoever's manning the slides there, I've just got scriptures, so I'm just going to have to see where I go, and that's okay. Great. So which government is going to be on Jesus' shoulders? Is he talking about the U.S. government? He's talking about local government? He's talking about maybe some other country, or maybe there's a country that is not kind of Christian, so the government's not on his shoulders. Which government is on Jesus' shoulders? I just read on Isaiah 6, the government is going to be on his shoulders. Which government? Every single one. All of them. Would you call that? I saw you do it. Yeah, I saw you do a high five there. Call that, call that. You see, Jesus told us himself, Matthew 28, all authority has been given to me. On, in case you didn't get all authority, all authority has been given to me on heaven, on earth, as well as in heaven, he says. He is Lord, he is governor of all, human, spiritual, the whole thing. Okay, so Paul starts and he says, let every man, every human, every person be subject to the human governing authorities. Willingly, he says, willingly. How many willing subjects do we have here? How many of you really love paying your taxes? I don't know how many of you have started paying your taxes yet. But I like getting my tax refund. Yeah, me too. Paying them, not so much. Willingly, he says. This is a church ethic. Paul knows that this is not something that the rest of the world really subscribes to. But this is a church ethic. Willingly, he says. Wouldn't it be nice if everyone in the world willingly subjected themselves to the authorities? We'd pay a lot less taxes. We wouldn't really need much of a police force, uh, law enforcement, etc. We wouldn't have to buy so many locks or security passcodes, etc. We wouldn't have so much of a judiciary problem. C.S. Lewis had this one story about learning how to drive a car. And he, he, he said that if he started driving, he's driving kind of in the in the parking lot area, in the driving testing grounds, and he gets the hang of it. He gets the hang of how all the levers and switches and steering wheel and everything work. And so his instructor says to him, okay, it's time to get out on the road. And he thinks, yeah, I got this. This feels good. And off he goes out onto the road, 
He lasts about 30 seconds and pulls over, white knuckles his, his instructor said, what's wrong? He says, it's all the other people. <laughs> it's all the other people. That's a problem with the world, right? It's not me. I know how to handle myself. It's all you people. <laughs> That's a joke, by the way. You didn't laugh as much on that joke as the other ones. It's a messed up world when you look at humanity. We, we are not subject. We are rebellious. God himself is subject. I said earlier, who's the highest authority here? God is, but he himself makes himself subject to this ethic too. I spoke about this actually last time that I was here. I spoke about the holiness of God. He says, be holy as I am holy, right? There's a statement of subjection. To be holy is a divine ethic. If we want to be holy, we need to make ourselves subject, he says. If you want an example of this, we just have to look at the very first chapter of the book of Job. How God is in heaven talking to his counsel, his government, which is, a, which is really what that is. It's a government setting in Job chapter 1. And he's telling them about Job on earth, what a good guy he is. And, and, and one, of his, one of God's underlings, spiritual being, steps forward and says, hang on, God. Isn't there some nepotism going on here? You, you're just being nice to this guy because he worships you. God does not smite him. Doesn't, who do you think you are? Off to demon jail for you. He actually submits to this being's accusation. All right, then, let's test your theory. Let's see if you're right. God makes himself subject. It's the most amazing thing. As God is, so ought we to be. Paul's point, willingly subject. I want you to notice, he doesn't give a qualifier here. I'm speaking to mostly to millennials here, so there's no idealism going on here. Be subject to the governing authorities, but only if they, you know, ideal, only if, if they're not corrupt, only, only if there's no bad stuff going on. If there's bad stuff going on, you don't have to listen to them. Paul does not say that. <laughs> and if you were to extrapolate that, that a bit further, the Bible tells us the same thing about, for example, parents who are another form of human governing. It doesn't say, honor your parents if they're nice to you or if they're good parents. It just says, honor them. So what about activism then? What about my rights to stand up how do I address injustice that I see amongst the governing forces in my land? Are believers not to engage in public discourse, in debates, that kind of thing? Ah, well, then we get into some interesting thoughts, don't we? Let's explore them a little bit. What I'm going to do is I'm going to talk about human authorities and our interaction with them, and then I'm going to talk a little bit about heavenly authorities and our interaction with them. We're hoping to do it all in time. So let's look, at the, look at, let's look at the earthly human governing authorities that we have. Paul says government has a kind of a sword. It brandishes this weapon, and it's given to it by God, says, says Paul. It's a weapon of enforcement. The church is another authority on earth. It has a different kind of weapon, and I, I wish I, we had time to go into that. Now, I'm not going to go into that now. I'm tempted to, but I'm not going to. Because we're focusing on human authorities and governmental authorities. Let me talk a little bit about 
what life was like when Paul was writing. Most of the people, even the citizens of Rome, had very, very few rights, what we would consider human rights. If you've done any look at uh, Maslow and seen how that's projected into human rights and stuff, we had very few of those kinds of rights. The church at this point even was actively persecuted by the state. So this authority Paul's speaking about was actually actively trying to snuff the church out. Their lives and their families were at stake. And Paul is saying, be subject to these authorities. They're God's instruments, he says. This is not, this is not Gandhi's theory. Gandhi's theory was very different, right? This is Paul. Paul saying, from a biblical point of view, be subject to these, even though they're tyrannical. But Paul, I want to say, they, they're a terror for good behavior, not just bad behavior. He says they, they're, a, they're a terror for people who behave badly. But in this context, they were a terror for people who behaved well. In fact, they seem to reward people who behave badly. Paul says, be subject to them. How do we apply this? How do we apply this to our lives? I, I want to submit to you, I want you to think about this a little bit, that we are called here to treat the seat with respect. Treat the seat of authority with respect. Because that is established by God. I'm going to show you what Paul means here. See, Paul's reminding us that the seat of authority is established by God. The governing authority seat is God's. Public servants are firstly God's servants, he says. They're accountable to him. And so hidden in this passage is a little warning. It, it might be directed at the church, but there's a warning here for anyone who serves in some kind of public office. Saying, yes, God says to the people, be subject, but he says to you, governing authorities, you're accountable to me. Did you see that? Did you, did you see that tucked in there? That there's this warning to them? There's been lots of human governing authorities through the ages. You just have to do a little bit of history to see how, how, how bad our governing can actually be as human beings. But very often a governing authority will get into that position and then they'll say something like, well, you see, since I'm in authority, God must agree with me, right? And so this passage comes and says, no, no, not necessarily. You are a subject to God, just as the people are subject to this authority. Treat the seat with respect because God established it. Be very careful with activism is, would be my way of putting it. Maybe there's a couple of activists here, people who are fairly politically active and, and, and are keen to make their voice heard. That's fine, but be careful. In your activism, don't undermine the seat that God has established. It's very easy to do. Paul says, therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. He doesn't say here, and you can, if you know any Greek studies, he's not talking here about a person. He doesn't say who. You can't find the word who in this sentence. He doesn't say who God has established. He says what God has established. And the word resist here is very, very important. He's not talking about a passive, well, I don't really feel like it. He's talking about 
active, hostile resistance. That is crossing a line that Paul says we really ought not to cross. Be careful with demanding justice. Walking down the street, I demand, I demand justice. You see, my friends, because you're also a person in authority, even if you only have authority over yourself, that authority is still accountable to God. If you demand justice, it will be demanded of you. Justice is absolute. Even God subjects himself to justice. Respect it. Respect it the way that Jesus did, is Paul's voice. Jesus was very vocal against corruption and the evil that he saw in his day, but he respected it nonetheless. Watch our attitude and our behavior. I want to give you a quick little example about this. I was traveling uh, north from South Africa, and I was, I was crossing into Zimbabwe. We're on our way to Malawi. There's three border crossings as we travel north to Malawi, and I was at the Zimbabwe border crossing. If you know anything about Zimbabwe, uh, it's not the most um, efficient uh, economy, and there's a lot of corruption at the local government level. And so there's a lot of taxes you've got to pay, and one of the taxes is a, a carbon tax. You've got to pay for your carbon emissions as you travel through the nation. And uh, so I'm waiting on the line of the carbon tax emissions to pay my carbon tax. Doesn't seem to particularly long, but over about half an hour, I realized this line's going nowhere. What's, what's happening? And I start to realize there's a whole system going on just to keep this line long. There's people coming in the front through paperwork or whatever. And it's all with bribery and there's back payments happening. And I, I realize I'm in the midst of a, a little scheme that they've got going to get a little bit extra cash and, and keep people who want to be honest frustrated, which I was. It's very easy then to lose your cool, realize you're being, you're being duped, realize that, that this authority is wrong and corrupt. How do you deal with it? Well, what I, what I did was uh, there was a, um, an official who was standing in close to the line to make sure that us who are forming the line, who are actually part of the scheme, because as long as the line is long enough, enough people will be prepared to pay bribes. So we're the suckers. And uh, I got close enough to him and I said to him, have you got kids? Yeah, yeah, he's got, he's got children. He told me about his family and I said to him, so tell me, are, are you happy with how you are robbing them of a future by this corruption that you're doing to your country? How about your grandkids and their kids in the future? Because People like me are going to tell other people about how corrupt this line is and, and this evil thing that you're doing, how bad it is. Shame on you, I said to him. Shame on you for robbing your family. What am I doing? I'm voicing my opinion, but I'm still honoring and respecting the seat. It's a very, very fine line. I can't promise you that I've got it right all the time, but I think this is what Paul's talking about. There is a way for us to be vocal, but still honor the seat that God has established. And it's very quick to cross that line and find ourselves in trouble. You see, my friends, one day, your generation is gonna be the ruling one, and those coming after you are gonna blame you for the mess of the world. If we've taken the stance of it's all their fault, we're gonna end up 
finding there's a lot of fingers pointing straight back at us. We submit to the authority as if it was not correct. As if it was ideal. This is, I think, God's way. And when we do that, the authority itself becomes somewhat translucent, transparent, and we see God through them. God becomes visible to us when we follow his word this way. It's the most amazing thing. We find that we become a whole lot less disgruntled with life, less dissatisfied, less ungrateful, less fearful, less depressed when we are able to see God through the authorities in our lives. We're able to see things we weren't able to see before. I don't know how many of you have been watching what's been going on with some of the um, politics around climate change, etc. I'm not making any statement about what I think about that. But I am saying that when we get children to try and guilt us, we're making a mistake. There's a young girl who's been paraded around in, in front of cameras making these statements. I think it's wrong. If you could remember back to 1992, anyone, who, who was around in 1992? Barely. If you can remember back to 1992, Rio, the Rio summit, there was a young 12-year-old girl who did a very, very similar thing, got up and tried to guilt the world into what it ought to be doing. 10 years later, she wrote an article for Time magazine. Here's a, here's a quote from it. She says, when I was 12, I was idealistic and naive. She said, she crossed the line. And I think it's wrong for us as a society to put that onto people. This is best described in the Bible through the story of the faith of the centurion. Matthew chapter 8. We see this centurion, he sees God through everything. He says to Jesus, I want you to come and heal my servant. I know you can. And Jesus says, I'm on my way. He says, you don't have to come. Just say the word. I understand how this thing works, Jesus. I see who you are. You see, I'm a man who has authority and I'm under authority too. And you, you don't read this. I'm kind of reading a bit into it. But if you were to ask him, he probably would say that his superior officer, he could tell you all of his faults. But that's not the point. The point is that through his superior officer, he sees Rome. And through Rome, he sees and God can answer his question. I get how authority works, he says. And Jesus says, I've never seen such faith in all of Israel. In the mid-1800s, Lord Acton, a British parliamentarian, wrote a letter to a friend of his who was a priest. And in this letter, he said something that's been taken up by the, the kind of sociologists of the world especially the secular ones. And he said this, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. How many of you have heard that statement somewhere in your schooling? About half. I want to tell you that that is an absolute conjecture. There's, he has no evidence for that, but we've taken it as if it was fact. We hear these things quoted and we go, yeah, that sounds reasonable. It's not true, my friends. Power corrupts, but absolute power is incorruptible. That's the point of the Bible. That's the point of who God is. 
Absolute power is incorruptible. That, my friends, is a statement of faith. And I'll also tell you this, it's the best antidepressant you're ever gonna take. If you're looking for an antidepressant, here it is. Absolute power is incorruptible. We undermine authority when we undermine our own faith. We gotta see the big picture. Romans 12, you've just done Romans 12, right? Romans 12, 19, it says this. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. We've got to trust. We have so little actually to complain about in our world. We have more rights and more privileges than any generation in any nation in the history of mankind. We have these brand new democratic processes. We look at them and think, that's old hat. No, voting for every single human being is very, very new. In fact, 1820 was the year that women got the vote in this nation. That's 100 years ago. It's a little drop in the history of mankind. These rights, these privileges that we have in this republic, they are phenomenal. We're not under some animist tribalist system. We're not under some oligarchy. We, we, we're accountable to just a small group like they were in Rome. And so then Paul moves into another phase. He says, you should pay your taxes. If you owe taxes, pay them, he says. Pay what you owe. But he says the one thing you should never think about, finish paying, is love. Love those around you. Make it like a, a bank account that you just can't pay enough into. Love fulfills the law. Love goes beyond the law, he says. So this area of paying taxes, I believe Paul is expounding on the most revolutionary statements the world has ever heard. The biggest revolutionary in the world said something in, in Matthew 22. And I'm going to read it for you. So there's, here's the setting. The Pharisees thought they want to trap Jesus. They want to get him. And so they send their smart guys to ask him some questions. And, and, uh, and one of them kind of comes up with this. Hey, you, you know you, you're a smart guy, Jesus, and you say the right kinds of things. So, so tell me. So this is Matthew 22, verse 17. Now tell us what you think about this. Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? You see, Jesus can be trapped here. If he says, no, don't pay taxes to Caesar, well, then the Romans are going to come get him. You teacher are telling people not to pay taxes, you're going to be sent to Colosseum. If he says, um, yeah, you should pay taxes to Caesar, well, then he's being a traitor to Israel. Israel was supposed to be its own nation, right? Jesus knew their evil motives. You hypocrites, he said, why are you trying to trap me? Here, show me a coin used for the tax. When they handed him a Roman coin, he said, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then, he said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply amazed them and, away, and they went away. Absolutely brilliant answer. And Dr. Mark Leetons calls this the most revolutionary statement of all time and I completely agree with him. You see, because not only did Jesus give them a profound answer, he also rejected the concept of the state religion in one go. 
Jesus separated his church from the state. I want to tell you, my friends, that is not an idea that science or sociology or secular thinking got us to. That was a Jesus idea. No one ever considered this before, that the church and the state could be separate. Every single government in the world up until that point was both a state religion as well as a government. Not Socrates, not Plato, not Aristotle, not Confucius. No one thought of this before. It was Jesus' idea. Both are legitimate. The church is legitimate and the state is legitimate. Jesus was the one who made them separate. Think with me for a moment about what it looks like when they're not separate. A state religion, for example. All state religions have a pagan view of government. And this concept is very foreign to us. Tribalism. It's one of the things that, that really interests me because I come from a kind of a second world nation, sometimes third world nation. And I see a lot of tribalism. I've seen a lot of tribalism. And we in our Western world, we have no clue how that works. All the tribes, all the, the secular states, they demand some God be worshipped. It's a demand that they make. Or, let's spin the coin a little bit, if you pardon the pun, they demand that some God not be worshipped, as we've seen in some of our communist states and the secularist idea as well. It's the same thing. It's still a state religion. And you can see it in Hinduism, modern Hinduism, Islam, Judaism to some extent. You can see it in secularism. You can see it in com communism. There's this demand. And in this demand is a rejection of all pluralism. All other forms of faith are rejected except this one. There's no tolerance. And so the sword is used. The sword of government is used to bring about this religious control. A perfect example we have of this in Scripture is the story in Daniel chapter 3 of Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You're, I'm sure you're aware of the story. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is trying to show his power. He's actually trying to show God that he's bigger than God, if you look at the context. So he builds a statue, and he has all this pomp and ceremony and music, and he, and he forces everyone to bow down and worship his, his statue. He doesn't know whether they really are. He doesn't know if they, under their breath they're saying, oh, what an idiot. He has no clue what they're saying really, what they really believe, but he's not interested in that. He's interested in what they're doing externally. All, all of the state religion focus is about what you do externally. It's not about what you believe. You know that John Bunyan, who wrote The Pilgrim's Progress, he wrote it from jail. He spent four years in prison. Guess what his crime was? He refused to go to the local parish church. So he spent four years in prison. It's another state religion. Christianity is not immune from this. Islam pleads plurality as it's entering in a nation. And when it gets power, what's the first thing to go? Any kind of other religious tolerance. Radical Hinduism, you think Hinduism is a peaceful religion, spend a bit of time in India. It's very, very violent. Secularism, of course, is trying to force a state religion onto this country, many of the Western countries. Nonconformists are persecuted, even if it's persecution by Korea. 
for something else. Vili Friday, they don't tell the party line. You've seen some of that. Compliance is demanded, speech and behavior. And we see this in the church. Around about 300 AD, about 10% of the Mesopotamian European world was Christian. By, by 312 AD, Constantine declared himself a believer. By 380 AD, the gospel had become the state religion. And we had what Daniel predicted as the toes of this history of civilization made of mixture of clay and iron. And if you know anything about pottery, you cannot mix clay and iron. If you heat them up enough and try and mix them, they're not going to stick together. See, Jesus had separated them, and we try to put them back together again, and it doesn't work. You know, what God says about marriage, he says, what God has joined together, let man not separate. What he says about state, what Jesus has separated, let man not try and put back together, because it doesn't work. The clergy got paid, they got political power, and was, what was born was the Holy Roman Empire, which was not holy, nor was it Roman, and it wasn't much of an empire. Plunged Europe into the dark ages, changed the character of the church, until Luther came along, and Luther, of course, brought along what we think about as the Reformation. If you think about long-term organizations like the church, or big civilizations, or big long-standing companies, how many of these organizations redeem themselves from within? The only one that I can think of is the church. When God sees us going off, he starts it up somewhere else. The church is not to force people. There's a bigger picture. Paul says, we are never to finish repaying a love to our brothers and our sisters. Even the pagans of the time admired the church for their love they had for each other. Not for their preaching or their music or their halls or for their love for each other. All right, I'm... I'm getting close to finishing. I want to speak a little bit now about the external spiritual kingdom authorities, the eternal ones. You see, we have bigger fish to fry than just merely what's going on down here. If we spend our lives trying to fix the problems here, we can easily lose the great reward we have in heaven. Corrupt human authorities become transparent, as I said, when we submit to them, when we are subject to them willingly. It allows us to see God through them and to trust him. Micah 6 verse 8 says this, He has told you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? There's this beautiful picture in Zechariah where Joshua, the high priest, is depicted as the king. And it says this in Zechariah 6.13. He will rule as king from his throne. He will also serve as priest from his throne, and there will be perfect harmony between the two roles. You see, Jesus is going to bring these two things back together again. State and church, government and community. But only Jesus can do it. Only Jesus is worthy to do it. He's going to show us how one day. And when we approach authority this way, 
eternity opens up to us. We see God's coming government, and it builds faith inside of us. When you read through scripture, I want you to keep your eyes open for what I think about as the council of heaven moments, the the moments where the government of God is, is exposed to us somehow. I spoke about Job chapter one. That's one example of the government of God being exposed to us. There's a few others. Zechariah chapter three is another one. If you want to go and read that up, it's another moment like that. There's a, another moment in, uh, in Luke chapter 22 when, when Jesus prophesies over Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. Do you ever wonder who did Satan ask? I want to sift Simon as wheat. Well, who's he speaking to? He's talking here about a God government moment. Satan has to fill out some kind of uh, requisition form if he wants to persecute you or me. He doesn't just get free access. He's got to go through an authority that he himself is subject to. That's the picture we see. It's good for us to, when we read, we think about Scripture this way. Psalm 82 is one of the key moments of the counsel of God or the the government of God. And it starts this way. It says, God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. The rest of the psalm, it's a very short psalm, but the rest of the psalm is about God saying to this government of his, you guys are the corrupt ones and I'm gonna come after you because I've subjected myself to this ethical law and you guys have corrupted it. And he judges them, judges his own government. God will hold every authority, my friends, to the same ethical standard, the perfect standard, including himself. And if you do a bit of Bible study, this is what the word propitiation actually means. It doesn't mean God saying, oh yeah, Jesus paid for it, that's cool. It means God saying, that standard is the same standard that I apply to myself for all eternity, and it's the perfect standard, and it's been met. Romans 3, Hebrews 1 John, it's all in there. I want you to think about this for a moment. Revelations 12. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and power of the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God. Again, that's a picture of God's government. The accuser trying to get you trapped. Look at him. I tempted him with this thing. I tempted her with that thing and she fell into my, my trap. Look at her. And the guilt wants to come onto you and wants to come onto you. You know what God's answer is? How dare you, accuser? How dare you set a trap and then blame someone for falling into it? I'm going to hold you accountable, says God. That's what Zechariah 3 is all about. My friends, we approach authority with humility, deeply standing on our rights and telling the world how it ought to be. We have our own battles to fight. Ephesians 6 says, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. It doesn't matter if it's mom or dad or the the police or some other authority in my life. That's not where my focus is. My focus is against the rulers and the authorities and the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. How do I fight against them? By submitting to the human authorities in my life. 
like Jesus did. I hope you're ready to do that. I want to pray. I'm going to leave the last scripture. When I pray, I want to th- you to think a little bit about the injustices that you have suffered in your life. The things that have kept you awake, the things that have maybe made you depressed or sad or frustrated or angry. And I want you to release them to him. Because my friends, he sees and he looks and he knows. And one day, there's not going to be a single thought that he doesn't bring to full account. You can trust him with whatever it was. I want to pray for you over whatever that is in your life. And then I want to pray for our government. Because Paul says in Timothy, He urges that prayers be made and supplications for those in rulership positions. So let's pray together. Father, we want to humble ourselves before you. Jesus, the great overcomer of every temptation, the one who made it all possible for us. We want to come before you and we want to say, would you put your hand on this government of ours? Would you put your hand on our local government here in Gig Harbor? Would you put your direction and your clarity on our state governments as they make decisions on our lawmakers? Would you direct and guide our president and our, and our uh, Congress as they convene? We know that there's things that go on that are not right, Lord God, but we pray for your blessing and your wisdom over them now, Lord God, that they make good decisions. Your word says we should give thanks for them. And so we thank you for those that step into those roles, for our police forces and other authorities that we have who step into those dangerous roles. And we ask, Lord God, that you bless them. Then I pray, Father God, for every injustice that is represented here. Every one of us who has faced some form of injustice, I pray right now that it would be released into your very, very vigilance, very watchful care. And that that anger, frustration, depression, sadness that has been on folks here tonight, that you would release that. In Jesus' name I pray. Thank you for your wonderful word that sets us free. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, everybody. Thank you so much.